1: Hi, this is Tristra Year Jaeger back again as your irregular host on the Music Tectonics podcast. And today I have with me Dr. Psyche Louie, who is an incredible researcher into the way music, uh, emotion, and our brains work together. I'll let her tell you more about her research so I don't get too um, (laughs) off-key, so to speak. Um, But I'm really, really, really happy to have you here today, Dr. Louie. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast.
0: Thank you for having me. It's great to be here.
1: So um, Psyche, if you could tell us a bit about what you do, um, you know, where you you work now, what your main research focuses are, and then I want to hear more about your musical background. But let's talk about what you're doing right now.
0: My um, official title is Assistant Professor of Creativity and Creative Practice. Um, And so I teach and I do research at Northeastern University in the Department of Music. Uh, I'm also affiliate um, assistant professor in the department of psychology at Northeastern university. Um, And I run my lab. My lab is called the mind lab where mind stands for music imaging and neural dynamics. Um, So I study music and the brain. I look at brains as they're listening to music. I look at brains associated with music. Um, I try to understand why we have a musical experience, why we, uh, why humans around the world enjoy music and and play music and and how it brings people together
1: that's fantastic. How did you start getting interested in this subject? um What's your own relationship to music?
0: I started playing the violin and piano when I was quite small. I think I started piano when I was five but i I really started to i've always been interested in in sounds and um I have absolute pitch. I mean, I don't know if that um, drove me towards playing more music. Um, and then I started violin lessons when I was seven. And it really was when I started playing in orchestra um, in, in grade school, I think like fifth grade or something, um, when I really started to to get really hooked uh, by the power of music. Um, I've also, also always really enjoyed science classes and thinking about Scientific ways of understanding. Um, and I think it was during college, during undergrad, when I started realizing that there's this emergent field of music and the brain um, that's just starting to come up, so papers just starting to get published at that time. And I really wanted to get in on it. And I guess I haven't really looked back.
1: That's really exciting. Um, so as you got to explore this fascinating. Uh, intersection of of psychology and neuroscience and musicology or um, creativity um, that must have been just I mean I, I think everyone that's listening to this podcast is uh, is someone who's pretty passionate about music even if they've gone into the business side or the tech side um, so it's really exciting to get such a, a unique perspective on what's actually going on in our <laughs> in our heads and our minds so. Let's, I'm going to ask you a terribly general question that's like, probably, it's a horrible layperson question. But um, how does music affect our emotional state? Um, how, as a scientist or a researcher, do you approach a question like that? And how do you trace the effect? What are, we, what are you looking at when you're looking at these effects?
0: Well, when we're talking about emotions, first of all, I like to introduce students um, to thinking about the different ways in which people have thought about emotions, I mean I think that we are all familiar with like the the term like oh I'm feeling happy or I'm feeling sad or you know these categorical descriptions of emotions but you can also think about emotion as being a certain space where you have a certain emotional space where I'm feeling very high energy and positive today or I'm feeling kind of negative today or I'm feeling bittersweet or maybe this piece of music has has this power to make me feel bittersweet which is kind of both good and bad right um, so I think that uh, music has this unique way of helping us navigate this emotional space. And I think the core of it, I mean, if you're trying to measure how it works in the brain or in the body, um, they're, they're bodily or psychophysiological tools that we can use. So um, they're quite small now. I mean, even my, my Apple Watch, right, it's, it's recording heart rate or um, and it's recording... Um, Like breathing. I mean, and so we can, we can have very small tools that, let's say, attach to the, the torso or attach to the fingertips that can detect your, your skin conductance or how, how sweaty you are. Uh, And, and that's something that, you know, you think, you'd think how sweaty you are, you know, not particularly sweaty. It's kind of a cool day today. Um, But it's really something that's actually, quite sensitive and it's quite reactive and also predictive of um, not only what has just happened, but also what's about to happen. Um, so for example, if I, if I suddenly do this, right, I mean, that's a little bit unexpected. And so you're going to have a, a, a quick change in your heart rate, a quick change in your breathing rate, a quick change in your, um, in, in your sweatiness. And these are all things that we can pick up, not even measuring the brain itself, but just measuring the body. Um, and what we're seeing is that when we listen to music that we really enjoy, you know, it doesn't have to be necessarily happy music, right? It could be sad music that you really resonate with. Um, it could be exciting music that that really kind of gets you riled up or makes you want to dance. Um, all these these uh, acoustic parameters of music are reflected in the physiological changes. So so when you're listening to music that you really um, you, you really enjoy, for example, music that gives you the chills, um, you, we can actually record the chills as in, we can record changes in, in heart rate and changes in skin conductance. And so, um, there's even little cameras now that are built just to look at the hairs on your, your arm. And and of course, when you're having a chill, then those hairs go a little bit higher up. Um, that is so. so what real. we're seeing—it's very that interesting. Is right? <laughs> yeah, and I think it's uh, these tools are becoming more and more available. I mean, you can also you can even build one to like continuously track your own your own responses to music. Um, but what we're seeing is that not only you know uh, when when you're listening to music that you really feel emotional about, um, not only do you get these changes in physiology, um, you also tend to have stronger connections in the brain between areas of the brain that are important for hearing, right? like auditory cortex, auditory areas, and areas of the brain that are important for social and emotional um, communication. So, I, so yeah, so I think one of the most fascinating findings is that there are people who tend to feel these chills more strongly than others. And there are some people who just don't feel emotional mm-hmm. to music at all. Um, and there are brain differences, especially between areas of the brain that are important for, uh, for hearing and areas of the brain that are important for, for sensing rewards um, and for emotion and, and social functions that are coactive and connected to each other.
1: That's really fascinating. So does music shape the brain? And does what we listen to, even as adults, start to change those connections?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think everything shapes the brain um, and the brain shapes everything. So it's really uh, and of course, the brain is part of the body and the body affects um, is is affected by what's going on around it and the body changes what's going on um, around the body. And so I think it really is a, a, a cycle or maybe a network of different interactions that happen between the brain and the body and the world. Um, so, and I think music is part of it. Like right now when I'm speaking, right, you're listening to what I'm saying and your brain is tracking with what I'm saying. And because you understand English and because you're like trying to pay attention to the conversation, um, your brain is not only tracking the acoustic parameters, right? Not only tracking how fast I'm talking, but you're also tracking at a more high level, the structural or sentence level. And for music that we enjoy and that we understand, um uh, we see the same kinds of things right so if i if i play you um a piece of music that's let's say uh you know two beats per uh per second right so 120 beats per minute um we should be able to record your brain activity while you're listening to uh to this music and we should see a peak at two cy- cycles per second or 2 hertz and so that's um that's just an example of how the brain tracks and, and, um, and, and trains um, or tunes itself or tunes the, its activity um, to the, the sounds as they're coming in. And, and furthermore, um, what we've seen but, um, in, in the field of music perception and cognition is that uh, the more engaged you are by the music and the more you understand or, or, or feel like it resonates with you, um, the more of this um, kind of frequency... Tuning activity we see in the brain.
1: That's like sorry, this is I'm I'm gonna keep jumping in and just going like oh my gosh that's so cool. <laughs> so, I I really love um, learning about this uh, even on just such a basic level. It's so fascinating. So uh, some of your research has involved um, pleasure and the pleasure we get from music, and I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about the the sort of mechanisms involved um, in experiencing pleasure in the brain and if um, the way we react to music and the pleasure we feel is any different from any other sort of sensory input or experience? Is there anything special about music when it comes to the reward cycle or or, or our our sensations of pleasure?
0: I think that's a really great question and I think that um, there's still a lot of debate among the researchers about what makes music special. Um, and I think that it comes down to, um, the, the, the energy that's coming in, right? Both, um, acoustic energy and it's rhythmic content and it's pitch content and it's harmonic content, right? So those musical features, um, and also the associated energy changes, right? So if I'm playing music, um, and you're watching me play music, there's also visual input that comes in, right? And so it's, it's not purely auditory, um. So all these different modes uh, or sensory um, energy that's coming in um, to your brain, um, I think that's, that can engage the reward system in a way because the brain is so good at making predictions. Um, and I think that the whole reward system, right, by reward system, I'm talking about the dopaminergic, um, the, the dopamine system in the brain, which is, of course, a neurotransmitter, a brain chemical that's important for, for pleasure. Um, and it's important for pleasure because it makes predictions about what's coming in. And if something is unexpected or is unexpectedly good or it's unexpectedly bad, then the the dopamine um, spurts, right, or, or, or dopamine activity is sensitive to that difference between what you expect and what actually comes in. Um, and so that's what the reward system is, is getting. I mean, I think it's a really nice analogy is, um, I mean, dopamine uh, reward systems, of course, sensitive to money, right? So if I make you, you know, play this a slot machine uh, type of game in, in the MRI and functional MRI, uh, then I can see that your reward system is active when you're winning, um, and you know suppressed when when you're losing or something um, and what's also interesting is that if you expect to win or you're almost winning um, you also get this reward activity right so so it's a really classic example that um, that the reward system is really doing these predictions and coding for a difference between um, expected and outcome um, and and of course the other thing to know is that um, the how, how tuned your reward system is? It depends on what you already have, right? So it depends on what you already know. Um, so, for example, if you um, you know make a, a millionaire or a billionaire play a slot machine game for a dollar, right? You're not going to get as much acti- uh, as much activity as you know, if you made a, a you know a person who's you know uh, at the poverty line play the same game for for a dollar, right? So so how much Um, your brain response to rewards is scaled by what you know and what you have to start. Um, And I think music is also that way. I mean, we've done some studies where we compared um, jazz improvising musicians, for example, against classically trained musicians. And what we're seeing is that there are different patterns of activity that are related to the reward system and related to learning, but really reflect the, the different kinds of knowledge that people have and that they bring into um to their musical experience so jazz improvising musicians for example like when they hear a new note they're like oh that's interesting their brain engage with engages with it um and then they kind of almost forget it and they can kind of keep moving on moving forward and i think that's what enables this very free-flowing state of jazz improvisation um whereas a classical musician like your, your your typical like uptight like Orchestral classical musician, of which I'm one of these people. You you go in, you hear a note, and you hear something that's unexpected, and you say, "Oh, that's wrong," <laughs> and so you just think about how that was wrong and how you're going to not make that mistake again. Whereas a, a jazz musician might not treat it as a mistake as much as um, treat it as something interesting that you want to engage with, and then and then kind of move forward from there.
1: It's so incredible how deeply our memory and um, experiences and skills I- impact our perception. Um, I think that's such an amazing example you just gave. Um, so, some other uh, other ways that people often engage with music, especially nowadays with the wide availability of things like you know on on-demand streaming services, etc., is to use, you know, so basic, basically make it a, a background to their lives. So it's part of their lifestyle, whether they're exercising or whether they're trying to calm down or whether they're trying to get something done, like to focus on homework or on a, a task of some kind. And you and some colleagues did some research into um, sustained attention and background music that was really interesting. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about that research and what you discovered. And um, if there are any takeaways that you want to share for um, how people might approach um, attention, encouraging music.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good question. So for the past couple of years, I've been working with a startup company called brain.fm and it's uh, it's an auditory neuroscience startup company in that they try to make music that puts you in certain states of the mind. And, And I think that, um, it's really just a starting field. There's quite a few companies now that are coming up that, that are doing this. Um, but the overarching principle comes from the the fact that we do have these different modes in which the brain works, right? So, uh, for example, I could be in a creative mode and just trying to take a step back from my, my daily routine exercises and, you know, maybe take a walk and try to encourage some new ideas. That's quite a different mode than this task-oriented or task-driven mode uh, when you're, you're trying to get stuff done. You're trying to write your paper. You're trying to read a thing. You're trying to, I don't know, get through your, your workday. Um, and I think the idea behind this sustained attention work is can you make music, make sounds that um, are background noise in a way that tunes your brain towards certain um, types of maybe desirable brain activity given a certain state, right? I'm not trying to change your activity forever um, or trying to change your, your brain forever um, with these, th- these tools, but trying to see if we could enhance certain band or frequencies or bands of brain activity that might be useful for certain tasks. And so uh, sustained attention is a really useful one to start because, um, I mean, we often have failures in sustained attention. I mean, if we are trying to read, I'm sure you and or your your audience might have had the experience. You're trying to read a, an article and it's like five pages long and you know, you get through the second page and then you realize, oh, you didn't actually read it. you just, eyes were just moving, but maybe your brain wasn't actually tracking. Uh, and so that's a cognitive failure, if you could call it that, or a failure of sustained attention. Uh, and so in the lab, we can induce these by giving people some fairly boring tasks, like, oh, you're just going to see a number come up every second or so, and you're going to press a button whenever a number comes up, which is very, very easy. Uh, and then we'll say, except for if it's a number three, so you shouldn't press a button when it's number three. And so because this is so easy, um, you keep pressing the button most of the time uh, and then you, your mind starts to wander and you have these failures of, of sustained attention. And then when a three comes up, you still press the button, right? So it's a, it's a false alarm, even though you knew exactly what the rules were. And it's, it's not because you didn't know, it's just because you're, you're, you you stopped paying attention. Uh, and so what we're seeing is that um, people who tend to have these... Um, not necessarily ADHD, but, um, or subclinical levels of ADHD, maybe people who report that they tend to have these failures in in sustained attention, they tend to make more of these, um, false alarms. But what we're seeing is that when people listen to music, that's tuned to specific frequencies, right. That has these, these amplitude modulations or these energies inserted in a way that's, um, that, that, and uh, frames your, your, rhythmic brain activity um then people who have higher tendencies to report these um these failures in sustained attention um they tend to improve in or as in show fewer mistakes um, after a few minutes of listening to this music, uh, and what we're seeing also is that when we record brain activity using event rela- or EEG, no, electroencephalography, so brain waves and brain potentials, what we're seeing is that people who have higher um, of these ADHD-like tendencies um, tend to show more of a, a tuning in towards the music over time, whereas people who have who don't have as much of these um, these symptoms um, just tend to start out being well-tuned. So maybe what the music is doing is over time, like gradually tuning um, the brain towards the the necessary um, rhythmic activity for sustained attention.
1: That's really exciting. And it's amazing that it's uh, really specific frequencies. I mean, I think um, people are often self Treating, right? They're they're going to some like like a lo-fi streaming, um, like chill beats kind of playlist, yeah. or you know, whether yeah. it's on YouTube or Spotify or somewhere, um, trying to maybe they're seeking out, like it's almost like people are looking for um this uh, this entrainment, this tuning that you're talking about. That's really, really fascinating. So um it's cool to hear that you're working with some um, audio startups. Um and I'm I mean, obviously you think a lot about what music does, how music changes people, how music helps people, um, both from a sort of clinical psychological health perspective and probably also just a, from a more humanitarian, you know, yeah. uh, social sciences perspective. Yeah, yeah. So if you had a magic wand and you could create a new way to listen to music or a new environment for listening to music, a new context for music listening, um, what would it be? Um, how would your understanding of the brain be? Um, you know, cause you to suggest new listening opportunities, different ways we could structure, um, how we present music, how technology is, is involved. Um, and, you know, feel free to get super sci-fi. This is completely speculative. This is, um, you know, full on fantasy, but, <laughs> but I would love to hear your perspective. Like, what do you dream about? If you could create any kind of music listening experience, what would it be like?
0: Yeah. I'm so appreciative that, uh, of this question. Um, I'm, I'm really glad you asked. And I love that you say, you prefaced the question by saying you can be super high, sci-fi, super super high in the sky. I think my my first response is actually quite lo-fi. I mean, it's actually, um, I wish people were, were more open-minded about what they listen to, right? And so, and in some ways, that's not really related to brain. It doesn't have to invoke any brain arguments at all. It's really just, uh, maybe a psychological um, difference. I think sometimes people are quite, can can become kind of stuck in a rut about what they listen to and what they choose to listen to. Um, I mean, so even this idea that music that hasn't been heard yet, that hasn't been composed yet, could be good for your brain or could be useful in ways that you didn't realize music could be useful for. I mean, I think that's, I think that that idea still makes some people a little bit, uncomfortable maybe um you know, because people I, I think we we get, get into this fixed uh, notion of what music is and what it's supposed to do right i mean and, and maybe yeah. some of it is like this you know art for art's sake and it's it's something that <laughs> should be protected and cherished and i totally agree with that right but i also think that's something that this music is something that can be innovated upon um, and now that we know many things about neuroscience that we didn't know before um, it would be really great to to see that gap close between the sciences and music making and mu- musical yeah. arts and musical technology. Um, I agree. Yeah.
1: And, oh, it just uh, just to interrupt for a second, it makes me think of the algorithmic experiments that happened in like the mid century, right? With like mid twentieth century, like Zanakis, um, Schoenberg, um, and and all the early you know electronic music pioneers, many of whom were also women. I don't know. There's I feel like maybe the 21st century will be the century of brain-based composing, like where we get, where we can do just that, like explore those intersections that are coming from a new science, not just mathematics or computing, but um, our own biological systems. Like that to me is a thrilling thought.
0: Yeah. And I think it opens up the possibility for different music for different brains. Like given, we know that we humans are diverse. We are, we're, there are many different, Um, You know, people are different in many ways. Um, Brains are different in many ways. And if we can think of a music that is especially tailored towards, you know, the way your brain works or the way my brain works, um, I mean, I I just think that the possibilities are endless.
1: I love the idea of different music for different brains, um, especially because music is so important to many people who are, say, a neurotypical. Um, that would be an incredible application of music. Um, are there any sort of technological or other aspects that you see coming into play? Are there any sort of early, very, very early emerging technologies, whether it's stuff that's currently used commonly in the lab, but could be translated into more like a, not a consumer product, but more, more broadly applied um, the way things like heart rate monitors are, or have been in recent years. You seeing anything interesting like that, that intrigues you or makes you think about the possibilities for future listening?
0: Yeah, I, th- I think that music can be used as a form of brain stimulation. Um, so in my lab, we're, we're testing out uh, a new multimodal brain stimulation system that includes music but isn't only music it's also lights uh, and so we were really inspired by research coming out of um, the MIT Media Lab the past few years um, and also coming out of Boston University uh, showing that if you um, take a mouse model of Alzheimer's disease right so this is, is a mouse that's genetically you know has the predisposition to get to get Alzheimer's disease um, and it, it has um, these plaques and tangles that are protein deposits in the brain that are characteristics of, of Alzheimer's disease. And you can stimulate their brains, um, both directly using light and also through the eyes, right, using light. Um, you can stimulate them in the gamma band frequency, which is around 40 Hertz. And what you see is that these mice actually um, show a reduced, um, a, a reduction in their, um, in their protein deposits and then they end up being better at running mazes and so on. Um, And another lab looking at humans now, looking at older adults have shown that if um, if you apply brain stimulation using electrical stimulation in a way that's consistent with how their brains are already rhythmically operating um you can actually get working memory to improve in older adults so that an old uh, an older adult's working memory uh, ends up approaching the same level as a young adult's working memory so essentially reversing aging which is pretty amazing um yeah yeah and i think that um music has c- can have that power um if we tailor it the right way if we couple it with the right forms of stimulation uh, because music is so engaging and rewarding to listen to um so you can imagine having uh you know let's say choosing some music to listen to Let, um, let's say for me it's um I don't know, Rachmaninoff second piano concerto, right? And uh, and it has certain rhythms in it already. Um, but then what my collaborator, Edward Large and Oscilloscape, uh, what they've done is they, they've built a neural network model that takes these rhythms that are in the music and then flashes lights with them, right? And then with that information, you can add another layer to that neural network model, and then you can flash lights in the gamma frequency range that is consistent with or coupled with the rhythms of the music. Uh, and so I think something that's like that, that's adaptive uh, and flexible and can be used by whoever wants to bring their music to the table to be to use. Um, so I think that can have really profound implications for how um, how we think about interventions for people who need it the most. I mean, I think there, there's no question that Alzheimer's disease and, and dementia are really serious problems um, in our society. Um, and if we can think about a non-invasive and enjoy, actually enjoyable way of, of um, applying a, an intervention, um, and, and, and that can actually help memory, which is pretty core to, um, to what's going on with Alzheimer's and, and dementia. Um, so I think that would be really huge.
1: That's amazing. Thank you so much, um, Dr. Louis, for taking the time to talk to talk us through um, some of these discoveries and um, innovations. It's really, really exciting. Um, And keep on uh, enjoying the podcast and we will see you again soon.
2: What's up, beautiful listeners? I've got a question for you. What do you want to hear next? Let me know at pages.musictectonics.com slash feedback. Suggest future guests and music tech topics you want to hear us cover and tell us how we're doing. Again, that's pages.musictectonics.com slash feedback. Look forward to hearing from you. Thanks for listening to Music Tectonics. If you like what you hear, please hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app. We put out new episodes every week. Want more? Find it at musictectonics.com. You can dig deeper into this episode, learn about our annual conference, get the Music Tectonics app, and sign up for our newsletter. MusicTectonics.com has it all. Also, look for Music Tectonics on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Clubhouse. And connect with me, Dmitri Viza, on LinkedIn. Peace.
0: You're listening to Music Tectonics.